Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is not a diving podcast, but Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. And it's episode 10 of the show. Yeah, we've made it to 10 episodes every week. It's a bit of a commitment schedule-wise, a bit of a commitment work-wise, but it's been a lot of fun doing it so far. And we have a lot of great guests scheduled for the coming weeks and months. So um, yeah, we're not letting up at all. We've been focused mostly so far, in fact, exclusively on DJs and producers, but I've got some guests coming up in the next few weeks uh, who are going to widen it out slightly. So um, club promoters and managers and recording engineers and those kinds of people. Um, I mentioned in the trailer in the first episode that we were going to be talking to music people generally on the show, not just DJs. So um, I'm going to be delivering on that over the next few weeks. But today, we do have another DJ. It's Appleblim. He is well known for his work with Shackleton on Skull Disco. Um, also for his albums on Sneaker Social Club. And just for being a great DJ and producer generally and an all-round good guy. He's also a very fluent talker. I had to do very little editing for this show, I'm happy to say. Um, so, yeah, just before we get into it, leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. It really, really does help. We are building an audience slowly, and um, the best way you can help us to do that is by hitting that five-star button or leaving a gushing review wherever. Um, <laughs> that definitely does make a good contribution. You can join us in the Discord via the link in the show notes which takes you through to Hot Flush Discord, um, within which there is a Not A Diving podcast channel. So yeah, do that if you've got anything to say to me. Or you can get me on Twitter, at Scuba Official. 
And finally, follow the Spotify playlist for the show where you can get hold of much of the music that we discuss on this show as well as all the episodes. So yeah, do that. So, okay, without further delay, um, actually, no, there is something. There is a further delay because I need to tell you about my US shows this weekend. I played a weekend last week um, in... Denver, Minneapolis, and Toronto. And this weekend, I have San Francisco on the 17th, Vancouver on the 18th, and El Paso on Sunday the 20th. So um, check my Twitter for full details of those shows. Thanks for everyone who came to the ones last week. And yeah, that is it. Okay, without further delay this time, here is Apple Bloom. Apple Blim, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm all good, thank you, Paul. It's nice to speak to you. Yeah, totally. You're in Berlin at the moment. That's right, yeah, yeah. Um, been here about five and a half years now, so kind of settled in. I mean, obviously, we knew each other a bit over this, you know, Berlin connection and so on. But yeah, I kind of ended up moving here then. Obviously, I've got old friends here as well. So yeah, it's been... Um, been interesting definitely been interesting i mean yeah we'll definitely get into um to berlin and all that stuff uh yeah later um i just wanted to kick off with something though to get us going i had um debridge on the show a couple of weeks ago yeah and we were talking about talking about uh like dubstep culture sorry not dubstep culture dub plate culture and its effect on um on the drum and bass sort of jungle scene and i mean he said something which really stuck with me which was that it hadn't actually been a huge part of it until a, a certain point in maybe like the mid to late nineties yeah. where um, it's kind of like overtook the kind of like promo culture. And I just wanted to, I wanted to ask you what you thought about dub play culture generally and whether you think it's like an overall kind of positive thing or whether there are any drawbacks to it. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I was listening to the D bridge one as well and I thought that was fascinating. All the things that he was saying in various contexts, I mean, definitely from the kind of, I guess for us in the dubstep scene, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but when I first started going down to Plastic People, um, which is obviously where Forward first started, and that was the first dubstep night, kind of that's that's official kind of thing. Um, we saw lots of dub plates down there, like literal physical dub plates, um, which even though I was aware of them from the jungle scene. So I'd seen people dropping dub plates. I wasn't necessarily from a kind of, I wasn't from a reggae background. I was into hardcore and rave and I was into jungle and drum and bass. Um, and I guess we're talking about, uh, it's, it's such a different era because of course the concept of having a tune that nobody else has got uh, it's it's obviously quite a strong one when you're trying to build yourself and give yourself identity as a DJ, especially, um, I mean, it's, there's so many ways you can go with this. I was even having this conversation just the other day with a friend where it's kind of almost a little bit like the, um, the old one of someone comes up and asks you what a tune is when you're playing. And most of the time I want to tell people that. Um, but of course, some of the sort of fun and allure and mystery of, of going out and listening to music is that you don't know what everything is all the time. 
and and that there's a sense of excitement that you're going to see a particular DJ perhaps and you don't know what they're going to be dropping and then when you hear it you're kind of like oh, who is this what could it be you know either sounds I remember going to see Groove Rider and and um, you know Pesce and and you know um, Dillinger and and Goldie and da 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 and you'd be you'd be totally frustrated or I would, I'd be totally frustrated <laughs> that I didn't know what those tunes were, but it made you so into going to see them the next time to hear it again and go, it's that, it must be Dillinger. It's, you know, it's got this weird sample of like, you know, bubbles and like all aboard, you know, like, well, it's gotta be Dillinger, you know, but, but, but it's like, and I remember back in those days, I'd, I'd, I'd walk out of Metalheads and I'd be like, oh, I just wish there was a way of me knowing what all that music was. And it's kind of like, now you've got that you've got that in your pocket with a phone obviously not for unreleased music but there is this thing that like when you're in the moment and and then you're you're sort of uh, astounded by a track or whatever that especially as a music fan or as a potential dj you're going i want that i want to be able to play that as well or i want to be able to hear it as well and so i feel and but now i i, I want the mystery back again so it's so ridiculous that at age kind of like 18 19 i was wanting one thing now we've got it and actually, I, I want, and, and I think there's a lot of culture now of people want things that, I, that they can't find on the internet easily. Even if you're going into like reissue culture and kind of finding things that aren't on YouTube or this kind of stuff, there's records getting played now by, um, you know, tech house people that were ignored records back in the day. But because it's obscure and it's still good, then they get props for playing it because it's not just going to beatport and download in the top 10 and then just playing that on sync which doesn't really take that much skill do you know what i mean so it's kind of like or, or any skill at all <laughs> yeah yeah so it's like but then it's but this whole idea of guardianship of music is it's the same as guardianship of knowledge you know i don't know whether you think with production and stuff like this it, it, there was so much secrecy around production back in the day and then so many times people are saying don't give away your secrets and then it's like it's like what are you actually trying to do so, so, so in terms of like, say, I know we're going all over the place, but with the dub plate thing, of course, when I saw those 10 inch presses down at, at, at forward, I was just sort of fascinated. I was kind of like, right, all of these plates are getting cut at the same place because it has this name on it and it says transition. And it even used to have a little sticker saying like, you know, I get my S word uh, cut at transition. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it was like, I thought... These, these people sound pretty interesting. And also these tracks not only sound amazing themselves because obviously they've been well made, but like these dub plates sounded so fat and, and that sound system sounded so fat. So I was like, I need to know what this is. I need to know who these people are. And I want to try and make music like this. And when I try and make the music like this, I'm going to go to that place and I'm going to get my plates cut there because it's, I learned from this core of producers that that is what they were doing. And I guess... It's not even like secrecy, you know, because it goes back to like, let's say like you're talking about sound systems and you're talking about even like the original Jamaican sound systems where they'd be bringing over imports of like, of actually like rhythm and blues music and stuff like this from America. And people would be scratching out the labels on it because they didn't want someone just coming up to the front and going, oh, it's that tune you're dropping, is it? That's making the crowd go mad. I'll go and buy that and I'll play it in my sound system next week. So there's, a, there's I think there's a fine line between protectiveness because you want your set or your sound to be the best, but also the the joy of spreading music, which presumably is why you're a DJ in the first place, because you want to make people, you want to translate that message of the music across to people. So I think it's like, it's a real, I don't think there's any 
right way of thinking about it. All, all I know is that the dubstep scene, even though it had this slightly secretive, slightly mysterious nature, in actual fact, the people weren't like that at all. And the people were very open and very chatty. And if you were really into the music and you could prove that you were going to do something good with it, they'd give you their tunes. It wasn't like the drum and bass scene where it was completely sealed off and you could go up and say <laughs> hi to a DJ and you might be lucky if you got a grunt or a nod or a sort of, I mean, whereas I found with, with, with our lot, with the dubstep lot, they were just so friendly and so cool and so nice and so happy that you were into their music. It, it, it kind of, it get, takes away that shadowy sort of like, oh, we're cooler than you because we've got all the good music. It's not about that. It's not about being cool. It's about we're making a sound, which we love, and actually, we don't want it watered down. So, and, and we're testing out new stuff. You know, so, I don't know. There's so many different ways you could go with it, Paul. I'm sure you'd agree. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> there's like, yeah, there's a kind of massively uh, wide range of potential answers to that. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, but just with, um, with DJing, there's always been that conflict between quite unquote educating people and, um, you know, and then doing a job. And, and with the, you know, with the the IDs thing, I mean, like, you know, there was, a, you know, in the kind of 80s and 90s, like kind of big culture of like just sticking white labels over your records, you know, so no one could yeah. see and all that kind of stuff. And like, I, I, I think like, I mean, yeah, I completely echo everything you said there. But I mean, I don't know, I think for me, like it's got to a stage now where there's, there's a kind of bit of oversharing going on yeah. with everything, you know, and, I, and, I, and actually what you said about production really resonated too, actually, because I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's such an oversupply now this sort of music, like this, it seems like there's just too much. And it's like, by, 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 by definition, like most of that will, won't be worth like your your time yeah and it's like what what is this what is this like you know what is the kind of sharing and the information overload and all the youtube videos and all the rest of it like what has that actually led to and 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 you and, and you don't want to be i personally don't want to be like sniffy about it because it's like well look you know who am i to say that that somebody knocking up a few loops off splice you know playing it at their rave people dancing to it and then they're playing all the other tunes that everybody else likes. So, you know, like who am I to say that's a, a worse way of going about your music making or career or, or whatever you want to call it. It's like, it does, it's about how you feel about it. So if you feel like you're kind of like doing what makes you happy and what makes your crowd happy or what makes your club happy or your creative, if you're satisfying your creative um, need in any way, then, then that's cool. And then, and then if we don't believe in it, then we do something else. And I think that's really it sort of does echo back to, to dubstep and so on, because it's like, I think those producers, I don't want to talk for them, but I remember hearing them chat about this, that it's like, you know, they did feel a bit locked out of drum and bass and jungle, and they did feel a bit locked out. Even it's like the garage scene wasn't quite for them. And, and so it's like, well, rather than sitting around and just slagging it off or kind of like going along to the nights and just being like, I'm not into this, or I'm going to tell the DJ I'm not into this. It's like, no, let's, let's do our own thing and let's make something which, satisfies us and then a few people might like it and and that was the case wasn't it paul i mean it's like it did take quite a long time for people to get their heads around that music oh it took years it took literally which was years. surprising wasn't it for us it's like we were so excited about it and we just thought this you know well i mean it got to the stage where i was surprised when it finally actually happened <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it did catch on the other way around <laughs> yeah it's so bizarre you know, so I think like, yeah, carry on. Yeah. Anyway, let's, um, let's step back for a moment. Yeah. We've, we've kind of got, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. running ahead a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk about, uh, your like filmative years in, in, uh, well, getting involved in the jungle. I'm pretty sure that's where you sort of, um, had your first 
kind of I guess you know memorable music experience certainly with with dance music in that kind of early jungle scene in the 90s so tell me a little bit about that and 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 your experiences there yeah I mean yeah I mean to be it to to it to an extent so kind of like I first went to raves in like 92 93 and it's kind of like this is pre what ended up you know being the jungle scene but you did have the word jungle techno around so we were really into people like top buzz but we were also really into we were from actually me and my mates we were into like you know just techno and electro and kind of um what would be called idm i guess or 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 rave music you know so it's kind of like you know that was the stuff that um was getting passed around on tapes at school but then also even just on on mainstream radio you could listen to radio one actually on a friday night and then some rave music would get played and you'd be like wow this is this is the stuff for me you know so it's kind of like in actual fact i remember when people first started playing me like um you know like moving shadow reinforced maybe around 93 um it took me a minute to, to get my head around it because i was i was used to this kind of like old school breakbeat ravey kind of thing and 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 this sounded like something different and i hadn't really followed the lineage clearly like i had friends of mine that had a lot of records and were buying things as they came out like two bad mice and whatever else but there seemed to be this little i was raving to like house music and trance and 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 um you know orbital um enjoy um you know um the orb and stuff like this but it's like uh, it was a bit like when I first heard the dubstep stuff. Uh, uh, it was like, wow, this is mad, and I, I, I'm not—I I don't quite get it yet. It took me a little minute, but wh- but when it changed for me is that I moved to London in '94. So I'd been going out just in my area where I was from in Plymouth, which actually had a very strong rave scene and actually a strong house music thing down there. Um, so there was a big club called the Warehouse that kind of like, you know, that's where you would first go out if you were a young raver that's where you went and and they do a mixture of of nights and styles so it could be anything from hard house to kind of what used to be called handbag house you know it could be trance it could be so you just go to that but like moving to london um in 94 obviously then you are being sort of just catapulted and we 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 moved to east london so we moved to like Leighton and then hackney quite quickly after that so you couldn't avoid it you know it was it was absolutely part of what you were just walking around hearing like when you walked around on the streets if a car was going by it was going to be playing jungle you know and 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 so it was and when you turned on the radio you couldn't move for stations on on the dial you'd you'd move it two little things and there'd be three more stations playing this like crazy stuff so that that was kind of like we went on a journey then of like right okay did you, sorry, if I can just interrupt you there, did you have a favourite station? Because obviously Deebridge was talking about that as well. It's really interesting him hearing him talk about the factions and stuff. Yeah, what was your... Yeah, there was there was, there was was Don FM, there was Rude FM, there was Cool FM, and that was kind of our ones. I mean, we were sort of, we ended up getting involved. So, I mean, like a friend that I lived with um, um, linked up with a few producers from, from Bristol and London and kind of ended up putting out drum and bassings around 97. So it was kind of like, and and we sort of we knew people at SRD like the the distributors um and they would provide us with some promos and then they also did a deal a, a P&D thing for my mate's label and that that got played a few times on on Cool FM you know so it was like it was DJ Ash Attack who was another uh, sort of one of my one of my favorites and it was kind of like you know so we got that early buzz of kind of like 
oh, wow, we've, we've managed. It wasn't my label. It wasn't my money. It wasn't my thing. But I was, you know, I'm friends with someone who did all this and was, I was a right-hand man for the whole thing when he was DJing and so on. So it's kind of like I saw the excitement of this tune making it into the bags of DJs that you heard on the radio. And, and that was amazing to hear that back on on an illegal FM dial, hearing this track track getting getting mixed <laughs> yeah, in, exactly. you know, it was like, wow, it's it's actually happening and it works and, and we're capable of doing this. I mean The first time that happens is an amazing yeah. feeling, absolutely. Like it really is. It's just kind of validation for what you've been Yeah, and, and I guess it's you know, it's, 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 it's a different era, isn't it? You know, it's like and like you're saying, this kind of like um everyone can make music, everyone can release music digitally, but back in those days it took it's not like, oh, I'm not saying it was like mad difficult, but but it was like you had to be really into something to kind of, you know. Oh, I mean, the, the barriers to entry were way higher back then. Yeah. Way, way higher. Like, I mean, just in terms of getting a tune made, as you know, just to get started. Yeah. You know, like there's no, you couldn't just like get a load, get, get a bunch of crack plugins and just you know, away you go. Like, you needed access to some some gear. Yeah, you needed you needed either yeah investment. You needed a crew. You needed to either pull your stuff together and and and. Yeah, it was, you were deep into it. If you were into it, it was, it was kind of like your life and, and you kind of, you were going to the record shops, you were kind of like listening to the radio, you were excited about what was happening in that scene. But I guess, yeah, I mean, I don't know where you want to jump next. That was kind of like, you know, I, I raved very sort of regularly um, to that stuff until Funnily enough, when Debridge was talking about the sort of the bad company era, ju- just after when the nine came out, maybe for about a, six months or a year after that, I kind of had my fill and, and I was getting a bit tired of a certain style, just like you guys were saying. What kind of what kind of raids were you going to, if I can just ask in specifically? It was it was it was it was mainly metalheads, but it would then be going to sort of like wherever my friend was playing. So my friend was DJing at strange things like things down in Bristol, things in smaller clubs in London, um, uh, things down. Yeah. We used to go to, um, things in Bristol. What was it called? Was it, was it roughneck ting or was it drive by stuff like this? So it was kind of like, you know, and and my friend would be getting booked for warm up slots at some just strange things out of town round kind of like home counties and stuff. And it was like, I, I loved like, tech step like when it first started that whole kind of ed rush no u-turn nico that that had a big impact on me but i felt like it 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 didn't well it, it even even things like you were saying things get homogenized and people understand there's a template and so they start making that template and and that's where i kind of i fell off a little bit and, and i got a bit swamped with it there was a lot of promos coming out there's a lot of white labels there's a lot of tunes that started sounding pretty similar i thought and and so i kind of um i stepped back then just as a even just as a raver i didn't i I stopped going out to that stuff for a while and i got into different things you know but yeah what so um yeah what was Um, it that filled the gap i was always alongside that really into just general electronica so um we were going out to things either warp records nights or reflex records clear records like orteca Aphex, that kind of stuff. And and I guess what you would call IDM, early kind of break core. But again, those nights started to lack a certain something. It's like because you'd have the big drum and bass 
raves. I was never really a, a renegade hardware kind of the end kind of guy. I think I went once and thought, I, I, you know, it just wasn't for me at that point. Now I really like those records, but it was just, it was, it was a bit too much for me. But going to these IDM and electronica things, people didn't really rave very hard at those. So it's kind of like, yeah, because it was maybe more <laughs> this listening thing or people were from slightly less of a maybe dance culture thing. So it was like, it was interesting musically, but it didn't have much vibe of a, a dance floor thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, I went to a few of those parties as well and they definitely felt... Um, yeah, they felt a little bit yes. tame, didn't they? In terms of like the uh, like the absolute the atmosphere, and they were playing some crazy music, and actually yeah. the music was fucking, you know, really out there in places. But it was just something lacking a little bit in the actual party. Yeah, it's weird because it's like Aphex and and Reflex used to do a night um, called Refresh, and it was at um, the Sound Shaft, so sort of like outside Heaven, the club Heaven in West London. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a smaller little club that was part of it called the Sound Shaft, and it, and it was brilliant. It was like it was like a pound to get in, and it was on a Tuesday or something like that. And it was like that was the one that kind of had because you could tell these guys they're all these mad old sort of Cornish ravers and stuff who they do come from that culture of free parties and kind of. Um, madness and and so that that kind of had a real vibe and energy and that ended up being kind of like our spot that was seemed to be a bit of a kind of a a place where people that were into interesting stuff that didn't didn't just want like one genre all night you know so it was like you didn't want to just hear Andy C play the same tunes that the next DJ is going to play that the next DJ is going to play this was like all over the shop it could be could be Aphex playing like like funky rock records like prog records or they played black sabbath or you know but then they'd have like um just their local friends and stuff coming on and playing you know a pummeling techno set or a kind of ambient set or a rave set so it was that was kind of more our vibe but it was just around then when i started getting again a little bit frustrated with it um and that that's when i discovered through a friend um plastic people and that kind of for me really felt like where sort of like this sounds a bit cheesy but like the spirit of rave had sort of been hiding it was kind of like right this is heavyweight this is experimental it's very funky it's like futuristic it's like all the things that when i first heard rave music that blew my mind about it it was like you you couldn't quite get a handle on it but you knew it was like ah, cutting edge sounds a bit dry but it was just kind of like it was like, oh, here is a vibe. This is what we need. It's a mega sound system. It's a dark room. And it's and it's about like this this insane music, which is, you know. You know that- yeah, I mean, you're, you're referring to, to Forward, obviously, at, yeah. at Plastic People, because obviously there was a few, yes. few nights, um, regular nights. There were there some other good nights, actually, as well, at Plastic People. But obviously, Forward was the uh, was the one. And, like, and Forward went through... Even in those early years, it went through a few stages because it definitely started off as a garage night, um, and and then it went through that. It had that kind of breakbeat garage element to it as yeah. well, and yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff that um, like Zed Bias was doing at the time under his various aliases, some of which was quite breaky, some of which was obviously still really you know, really garagey. Um, and it took a little while for the, the what what 
what could now be recognised as dubstep yeah. to kind of emerge out of that. So when when did you start going down to, to forward? That's that's what that was about my era was that break step thing. So it would have been like late 02, early 03, something like this. In fact, it would have been late 02 because I remember being, it was just as I, I actually started going to university. So it was like I was travelling back up to, to London. And I remember first, actually, even before I went, I remember seeing the flyers for forward and I was like, who are these people and what is this music? Because on the flyer it said, breaks, bleeps, bass, and, and maybe a couple of other things. It maybe even said like garage or something. And I was kind of like, that's interesting. That doesn't look like a garage flyer with like bottles of champagne on it and kind of like, you know, pay-as-you-go crew kind of in the background, you know. Well, that was that was the yeah. context, wasn't it? Because garage had become this kind of parody of itself by that stage. And um, it was in the process of kind of splintering off into its various different mm. factions. And I guess the kind of proto-grime stuff had you know, started pissing all the kind of like legacy garage guys yes. off a little bit. And like, you know, there were there were various things going on. And I think, yeah, so when Ford started in 2001, which was, it started off at a um, different venue actually, didn't it? It was at... Um, Oh, I think it was called Velvet Underground or something. Yeah, I never went there. Yeah, Velvet. Yeah, Velvet Rooms. Yeah, I never went to that one. Yeah, Velvet Rooms. That's it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And no, I, I went to the first ever one. I remember it because it was a bunch of. Um, it was very industry actually. Like it was. Um, it was very distributors and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everyone there was doing something in the scene. And I was there because a mate of mine was working for a magazine at the time. God, I can't remember what yeah. the magazine was called. But um, I got. I remember getting invited down and going down there. And um, I think Jada Flex might have played. I forget. I can't remember exactly. But I just remember being there and thinking, mm, this, is, this is cool. But it was very much like people just standing around having a drink. I mean, it's a quintessential kind of like industry bash kind of thing. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah, because it's kind of like, it's not like a rave. It's more like, this is where these people go that are making it. It's like, if you're not making it, then you're writing about it or you're working at the the distributors or your the, the journalists you know like that's it. and that's a that's a, i guess that's the formation of a of a scene isn't it do you know what i mean it's kind of like it's grassroots and it's small and then i guess i i hopped in just after that and it would be a mixture you even still had people playing there that were from the broken beat kind of scene because they would play at plastic people yeah, yeah bugs bugs yeah played didn't they yeah so bugs and jada flex oris j lombardo um, you would then get genius and you'd get slimsy. And it was kind of like, for, for me, that was kind of like, that was the joy of it really. Cause you'd get to hear so many different flavors, but all within this kind of like, I guess, tempo range. Do you know what I mean? But, but almost everything else about it could be very different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was really, it really felt vibrant in that, that yeah. kind of a way um, in those early years. But, but basically I think like there was a point at which, like it began to sort of like coalesce around the kind of half step sound, but it, it took a number of years before that really happened. Yeah, um, I was trying to I was trying to figure out whether there was any like like hard inflection points. I remember one was definitely when they when they started invi- inviting uh, the MCs down. That was a very very hard shift. Yeah, um, which I have to say wasn't completely to my taste at the time. Um, uh, but there were but like I said, there were various different. Um, kind of like the areas of it and and we're talking about and it was basically a five-year period because i kind of i see like the 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 big change happens basically after the marianne hub show after the dubstep war show and then suddenly everyone was interested yes but like it it was five years before that happened so it's a long time yeah and and what an interesting five years and the records that were coming out were so like we used to go to um black market and uptown records and like 
they put all the weirder tunes to to one side for it was my mate who was mainly buying them but it was kind of like there was this kind of like strange stuff that it's like well it's not garage it's not really particularly grime it's not this it's not it, it was there was a really weird selection and really interesting really ravey really energetic but but like you said like very um it hadn't coalesced into like a sound you wouldn't have said to someone oh i make tunes that sound like they get played at forward it was kind of like that could be so broad whereas i think once a couple of those half step tunes got big so obviously like loafer horror show and i think like um wonder like what what by wonder you know like absolutely eternal classic you know and that started to it, it started to go that way didn't it where it's like okay it's on this half step thing and then people start to either mimic it and they learn i mean even myself i heard this is how they made it. It's like, oh, I, I read a, an interview with, with Benger and Scream when they were about 14, 15. And it's like, they're like, yeah, we use Fruity Loops. So we use this this synth on Fruity Loops. It's called the TS-404 or whatever it was. And I was like, okay, I'm getting that then. And I'm going to have a go. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, so, you know, the next wave of people try and have a go. And you're always, you know, that's what I want to do. I wanted to make tunes that sounded like, you know, Scream, Benger, Vexed, Digital Mystics. That was that was my aim. Of course, I wanted to put a little spin on it myself, but it was very much led by being inspired by this um, group of people. So it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's really interesting when you see... Uh, and hear a sound develop that way. It's kind of like you, you watch the waves kind of ripple out, don't you? And and more people start playing it, more people yeah, yeah, start yeah. appreciating it. You know, we were just, we were astounded that like every week we, or every other week, at first it was every month, we'd go to Ford and, and they'd, they'd be, sometimes there'd be less people there progressively. You know, it'd be sort of like, oh, there'd be a busy night, you know, 50 people. Oh, yeah. there absolutely was, yeah. There was, I think, I think there was a point in like two, 2004 maybe, where it was really slow there and it was like it was a real kind of like are they going to keep doing this like does it does it yeah they were almost going to close they were almost going to close you know it was like because it's like well what's the point in us opening this up if only 20 or 30 people are going to come do you know I mean it would be the DJs their mates and and a couple of heads you know and it was like but then it, it just they stuck with it and 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 respect to them and then then we saw it really kind of blow up didn't we so like when it went to Friday night so I remember it went twice monthly then it went weekly because it was popular enough to do that then it went on to a Friday and that was mad as well because it was like previously it had been that headsy thing of like you know it's people who know the the music and or, or are really deep into it Friday nights you're going to get random people coming in you know just from around Shoreditch and it and it was hand in hand when the music got a bit rowdier and and it actually ended up. I remember there being sort of like it wasn't ever trouble in there, but there was there was this very strange energy that came in at that point. And again, to their um, you know respect to the to Sarah and all that, like they were like Friday ain't working. We're going to change it again. Do you know what I mean? Because it was kind of like it was actually not quite the vibe that they wanted. So it's kind of like it's very interesting to see people curate stuff like that yeah yeah for the benefit of people who don't know like it's um plastic people was in the middle of shoreditch which is like a very very popular kind of going out area so on a friday you get a ton of just people out for a night out a ton of passing trade a ton of like drunken kind of city workers and all that kind of stuff so so if people aren't aware of that that's that's the friday night in that area you know so i can completely understand it was crazy it was crazy that and that was the only time there was ever any sort of problems like that and and that's kind of like why it's 
I mean, it was so sad that when plastic kind of had to go because it was kind of like it was such an important venue for lots of different types of sounds, you know, whether it was Theo Parrish or, you know, they booked a lot of people when when people didn't book those kind of people in, in big clubs. And 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 I mean, it, there's a whole conversation to be had about what was going on at the time. It was the Olympics were going to happen. They were trying to clean Shoreditch up. And actually, I feel like there was um there was a race angle because there'd often be, you know, people out queuing up black people perhaps sometimes people might be smoking a joint or something but causing no problem and 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 yet plastic people was kind of like i think targeted in that way um you know i might not have the full story but it certainly felt like there was sort of like um i don't know that uh this very positive spot that really was against all that stuff you'd you'd walk around the rest of shoreditch and you'd see you'd see fights you'd see smashed glass you'd see da 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 you know, forward and plastic people was never like that. It was almost the total antithesis of that, and and yet they weren't allowed to to, to survive. And I think that that's a real, um, a really sad and 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 culturally important place that got lost there. Do you know what I mean? But hey, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure about the the exact story about what went on with the closer either. Um, I heard obviously, yeah, there was lots of kind of like rumours and you know, potential, uh, <laughs> potential um, ways that it may have, may or may not have, have played out. But I mean, yeah, it's something, to, something to dig into. Um, so let's, um, let's go back a bit to um, how you got into actually participating in, in the scene. Cause it was from pretty early on, actually, that you and Shackleton, of course, were, you know, starting to make tunes and giving them out and like putting on the Skull Disco parties as well. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. What, what, when did you, when did you get interested in actually doing the stuff yourself, more doing the stuff, making, making music yourself? Yeah. Well, well, like, like I said, I got hold of like, you know, I got hold of Fruity Loops and started messing about and trying to put things together that sounded a bit like this stuff. And I guess we were encouraged by the fact that we did find it a very friendly scene like you'd go down to Ford and you'd, you'd chat to the bar staff you'd chat to the people on the door you'd end up chatting to other fans or the producers and it was kind of like it was this funny little kind of like strange misfit family thing that that were actually very cool we'd end up talking to to all the DJs and all the producers and, and we're kind of like you were you were part of the, the the crew in a way like they they recognized you when you came again they saw that you were really into the the sounds and through Sarah um, Lockhart, who ran the night, you know, like, um, weirdly, I mean, it all happened all sort of around the same time. I ended up getting in touch with her without really knowing the connections. There was just like an email on a bunch of the records that I was buying. There was like an info um, email. And I was like, oh, this seems to be the same little company that's putting all these really interesting records out. I'm just going to like say hi. And I'm, I'm also because I was very into um, wider kind of musical culture and I was always up on the journalists and the kind of um, other DJs and, and so on and so on. And I was sort of saying, look, I think people would be very interested in this stuff. I think I could probably get this to people on either, you know, um, on radio uh, to journalists and kind of just almost like just saying, not even offering my help, but just more like, oh, you know, really interested and excited at what you're doing, da 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 um, and I got an email back actually from Sarah, just sort of saying, uh, yo, what's your phone number, bruv? Like, do you want to, do you want to chat? And I was just kind of like, oh, okay. And ended up chatting and ended up kind of working 
um, for Sarah at Temper and Ammunition, helping promote this music. Uh, at the same time, she could because we just started Skull Disco, and she was like, oh, "I've been hearing about these Skull Disco records, and we we put a couple of things out which perhaps hadn't been noticed that widely. They've been noticed a little bit, and they." they did stock these things in things like black market and stuff like this. Cause they could hear, but we were sort of trying to make stuff that sounded like stuff that was around, but it wasn't necessarily getting played by a lot of DJs, but like um, there was a, a couple of releases that got bigger. So I think with Shackleton um, blood on my hands and stuff like this, it was like people really took notice. And I think Sarah thought, let me, let me just, let me just stop, stop you there for a moment. Yeah. Like, so um what was the what was the sort of what was the process between you and Sam Shackleton uh, deciding to do Skull Disco? Because I mean, that was the first time you'd been involved in directly involved in releases. Is that correct? Yeah. So kind of like um, it was really just through. I mean, Sam was already kind of experimenting, making this quite sort of like mad. Um, how would you describe it? Lo-fi dance hall stuff with kind of like drum machines and he had this what were they called um evil mastermind and it was him and a mate who actually went on to do stuff with him um the vocals on a lot of his tracks like vengeance tenfold but they were they were like this duo that did this crazy set of kind of it's like how do you describe it yeah lo-fi punk dub ragga madness and i'd heard some of this stuff and thought it was cool and and he'd been making some other stuff like sam had been making these other just instrumental bits and and inspired by the stuff that we'd both been going to forward together because we'd we'd met through a friend at a record shop that I was working in. So we used to head down there together. So we'd be into what was coming out and we'd be listening to Digital Mystics and thinking, this is brilliant stuff. And Sam was like, look, I've got a few tracks that I think, I think they're all right. And it's like, I think I remember you saying you had a few tracks. So send me, send, send them over. And he was like, these are all right. I reckon we can probably do something with this. Just, it was, it was really, it was, it was Sam's enthusiasm. I would never have dared um, think that these tracks were really either ready to be released or, or anything. It was really just Sam kind of pushing me and just saying like, look, come on, let's do it. Let's do like a little split, split 12 inch. I'll put the money up. You know, I've got this artwork from his old friend, Zeke Clough, who, um, they used to do like fanzines together back in the day, kind of like punk, hardcore kind of noise stuff. But he was like, look, I've got this kind of vision for it, you know? And so I was I, really, it was really as easy as me going, yeah, I'm up for that and, and I'll chuck you some tunes. But then I guess where I came into it was helping promote it. So I was in touch with, I knew people in around and about in, in either the record shops or radio and, um, and so on and so on. So it's kind of, it, it fed in together. And I think Sarah from, from Temper and Forward and, and Ammunition, which was um, you know, a real hub of, of creativity, she was like, oh, I can see that you guys are into this. I can see you're engaged. You know, you've, you've, you've put your hand in your pocket, you've made a record it's interesting. People are talking about it and it's kind of like, let's, let's work together a bit on this and let's see what happens. And it's kind of, that's where, yeah. So did you have, sorry, did you have distribution at that point or were you just doing it yourself? What did we have? I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember. I think the first one, probably not. um, And it was just taking it round to places. I think by the third one, would it have been, I think it would have been ST Holdings who, who kind of like, um, would have then helped with the kind of production and, and so on. So it's kind of like the first two kind of 
they didn't cause that much of a ripple. They, they, you know, they got noticed in a few places. They got, we got reviewed in, I don't know, The Wire magazine and a few other things. And it was like more on the fringes. But like, I think, um, yeah, it was kind of around the time that, that Shaq did that um, Blood on My Hands track, which it, it, it cross, started to cross over and people started to notice the label that wouldn't have previously. And it kind of got, it got validated a bit really just by, by sort of DJs picking up on it or people talking about it in interviews or charting it. And then suddenly you've got a bit of, a bit of clout and a bit of kudos and you're actually starting to sell um, numbers then. So we actually started to sell a, a reasonable amount, which, which gets to the next, I guess, era of it, which is when, all the kind of techno and Berlin and Villa Lobos and all that lot, you know, like were very interested in the UK sound and we were right place, right time and making, I think, interesting stuff that people resonated with, especially over in Berlin. Yeah. Okay. So just, just before we get to the Villa Lobos moment, um, <laughs> just in terms of your stuff though, yeah, cause, um, uh, like Sam was, um, I mean, it's Sam's his own his own thing. Like he's a completely sort of singular kind of force of nature um, in 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 many respects, actually of of his of his life. He's a unique character. Yeah, he certainly is. Yeah, um, I'm hopefully going to persuade him to come on here at some point. That'd be great. But I'm I'm not holding my not holding my breath at this point. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, um, but yeah, in terms of your music making. It sounds like you were quite sort of reluctant or like maybe sort of like a li- lacking in confidence a little bit. Like what, what was your, was there a turning point with that or like how did it kind of pan out? Yeah, I had a, I had sort of very, very little confidence, but, but, but with this weird burning need to be involved in this scene. So it was kind of like, it was a mixture between, I had a lot of kind of imposter syndrome because it was kind of like I was an outsider. I wasn't, a, I wasn't from Croydon. I wasn't a, a, a you know, a, a first wave dubstepper. I was just someone who liked the music and then had a little pop at trying to make it. And that's really how I saw myself for a long time. And so I guess my confidence grew slowly, but kind of like I had, I had a track that I ended up making called Vansan, which kind of like, that was probably the first one where I thought like, oh, okay, I got a result that I kind of had aimed for and people picked up on it a bit. So it kind of like, it did get chartered. It got played on the radio. Um, you know, it was the first time I'd seen that something that I'd made had kind of like had a bit of a kind of a ripple. And um, I remember one of my real heroes, um, Francoise Kevorkian, the old kind of disco producer and house house guy, he was always someone that was into dubby kind of sounds. And, and I saw him do like a top 10 of his you know, dubstep things. He was one of the first house DJs on it, actually. And and my track was in there. So it was kind of like, oh, OK, right. I must be doing something right then. And and from there, it just kind of it I don't know, it grew. I, I, I've always been more of a collaborator. I, I, I always played in bands when I was younger. And and so I'm, I, I feed off the energy of other people. My solo stuff, I, I enjoy it, but it's it's more of a it's a struggle and and a kind of like a uh, well, how would you describe it? Yeah, kind of I have to really work at it. Whereas if I'm with someone else or other people, music just flows very naturally for me. So I did a lot of collabs around that time that also got got attention. So it's kind of like I did um, the thing with Peverist. Um, called Circling. And that, again, people really liked it. And I did stuff with um, Ramadan Man, who went on to be Pearson Sound. We had some things that they didn't blow up in the house music scene, but people did play them. It was kind of this crossover 
weird deep techie house stuff that was kind of yeah from the bass music dubstep thing yeah i mean i i guess that was sort of i'm moving into what people call slightly uncomfortably the post dubstep era um (laughs) which is always it's a bit ridiculous but um but that was kind of a really interesting time actually i think in music because when the stuff that was being influenced by that dubstep thing i think partly as a result of it dubstep itself becoming popular and people jumping on it and particularly the people from um north america who shall remain lameless jump jump, jumping on it um but it just i guess i guess i I guess it gave people kind of kind of pause a cause to kind of like step back a little bit and think about it and and just you know expands their horizons a little bit which which is for me what it was always about in the first place exactly i mean like that's what we loved about it and 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 i feel like at a certain point I think I think there were, I remember once at forward I kind of like I played something and I thought hang on did I play that cuz I really really love it or did I play it because I thought it would fit and please the crowd and it was the one time I had that feeling and I thought no nah, I'm I'm not going to do that again I'm not going to sort of like ask myself that question it's kind of like I, I need to be sort of behind the things that I'm playing and that equaled really stepping away from the kind of like the tear out stuff and really it was definitely um it was Hyfe Mungo, you know, like, you know, on, on Hot Flush that I think that kind of really it showed you, wow, there's this younger generation who have been going to forward, who've been listening, who've been enthusiastic, but who aren't going to just do it by numbers. And it was so refreshing. And so it was like a breath of fresh air. And it was like that really then set you kind of like, hmm, so where can we go from here then? And I think, yeah, yeah even like with the whole autonomic thing that you were talking about with Deepridge, that was, that was a massive thing for me and my mates. We were like, this is what the scene needs. It's like, it's fresh, it's different, it's deep. It's also really funky and dance floor. It's got influences from everywhere. You know, all the same reasons why we first started getting into dubstep was, was present in that stuff. And it was kind of like mega exciting and, and kind of inspiring. And then it refracted, into a bit of everything. And I think since then, that, that's what really everybody's been doing on a certain side of it, um, yourself included. It was really trying out lots of different stuff. It's like, no, we're not going to just be tied to 140. We're not just going to be tied to half step. We're not going to be tied to keeping a, a really rowdy dance floor. It's like, we're going to sort of like try a bit of everything. And, and since then, that's what I, I tried to do with my DJ sets. And I still do. It's like, I want to play a real variety. And I want to kind of like, because I love all, all different stuff. I don't just love... <laughs> 140 dubstep do you know what I mean so it's kind of like it, it, it widened it out and it gave people an opportunity to express some a totally different set of feelings and emotions and stuff you know so yeah yeah so let's um let's talk about your DJ name for, for, for a moment um because and it sounds like from what you just said that um you are, you have been and I don't know if this is still true but like you are, you're a bit more confident as a DJ than you are in the studio is, is that is that fair yeah, that was, I saw myself always as more of a sort of, I was a music finder and a music spreader. That was always kind of my role, even just amongst my friends when I was younger. It was like, I was the one who was going out and buying things, sourcing things, finding things, walking around with a big bag full of tapes and records and stuff that kind of like, um, you know, that was my, where my skills were perhaps. Whereas I never felt that I really had necessarily songwriting skills because i mean i come from a band background i could arrange songs i could play my parts i could edit and help um structure but i did i never came up with the raw material 
So when I first started trying to do that on my own with software, it was very new to me and I didn't have confidence. So it's kind of like, whereas I know that I know about music and I know that I know a good tune and I know I'm not technically a brilliant DJ, but I know that I can um, translate emotions through that medium and I'm comfortable with it. So it's kind of, that's been my, um, where I would say my expertise is, whereas the production thing was always like, I'm, I'm trying my best at this, but I felt like I had, I don't know, almost because I was a bit older as well. When I started, I was like 27, 28 before I even started attempting to make um, music with software. And I felt like I was catching up and I knew a lot of people that were younger than me that knew a lot more than me about how to make music and about the equipment and about da da da. So I, I kind of I often had this kind of feeling that, um, I'm giving it a go. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, whereas now I think I've lost that. I think I do have the confidence and I know that I can do it, but it took me quite a long time, you know? Mm. So was there, were there any kind of key moments in your sort of journey as a DJ that were Whew. sort of significant? I mean, it sounds like you know, playing at four for the first time probably was one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, that's where a lot of that stuff, I mean, it's like, it was so nerve wracking and it's somewhere that you, you love it and you respect it so much to, to be asked by Sarah to come down and do a, a warm up set. There was like, you know, it was like, um, very daunting and, you know, I'm trying to like put the needle on these, these dub plates or these records. And there's every one of my favorite producers is kind of walking in and giving you a little fist bump and start sitting in the little spot behind <laughs> the decks. So I'm like, I'm absolutely bricking it, you know? So it was kind of like, it was trial by fire and I messed up a lot of mixes down there. You know, I wasn't a good DJ at that point. I was, I had good tunes, but I'd never, I'd mixed at like free parties and kind of like, you know, like little raves and stuff, but it, there was never any pressure there because it's just people are just going out because they're going out. Whereas when you're presenting yourself as, I know about this music, I've got something to say with it. That pressure was intense and it, it took me, it was trial by fire, you know, and, and fair play, Sarah kind of had faith in me, kept booking me and then, eventually it was like okay you're ready to not do the warm-up you'll play later and I remember yeah finally playing maybe one o'clock set or something like that and a tune that I'd made with a friend got 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 the wheel up from from like the crowd and like crazy d and that was like that was insane to me and actually my friend was there it was um will gatekeeper and like we thought like oh it's not we've made this thing it's all right I'm gonna cut it I'm gonna play it and we didn't think it would we just I don't know what we thought and for it to have that energy and get a response then it was it was kind of like oh I've I've got the seal of approval from the kind of from the heads and from crazy D on the mic. It was kind of like, right. Okay. I'm, I'm sort of accepted a bit more and I'm doing something that's, cause that's what it's, that's what it's about essentially, isn't it? It's like, you want to get people reacting to your music. And so that was, yeah, I gained confidence, started getting more bookings because the, the label kind of blew up. So we started really getting a lot of attention. So then suddenly you're on a, a booking agency and you're getting gigs like, every weekend so it was it was yeah I was learning as I was going and then you start playing bigger places and every time it's scary but every time you do it and succeed a bit that gave me a bit more confidence and yeah I mean uh, now I don't play like massive shows anymore but I, I love just playing little things and I feel like that's where I really sort of come into my own really is is as a as a selector and a DJ do you know what I mean but hmm. so um it's interesting you mentioned free parties because um, you did a few uh, Skull Disco raves, parties. <laughs> they were really fun. I mean, I meant to a few. I got absolutely hammered at one. There's, that, like, there's, a, uh, there's a photo of me that Georgina uh, 
Drums of the South took and I look absolutely wired and I def- definitely it was. was it was a funny time wasn't it I mean like yeah like like I think those parties were sort of just our little attempt at sort of giving giving something back and trying something ourselves it's like look we've been doing our thing I actually had a friend who was booking this was early on though wasn't it it must have been 2004 5-ish yeah yes yeah and, and and in fact our mate um Bobak like Nectar Selector he'd been booking people like youngster and um, plastician scream when nobody outside that scene was booking them you know it was like the only place they ever played was was forward and bobak used to book them to play these crazy warehouse raves in stoke newington and they loved it they were like what is this you know it's no longer 30 people down at plastic people it's like 300 400 people in a warehouse going mental to their music and so that we <laughs> yeah. you know we had and we had a kindred spirit of of you know, we're all just silly music fans that want energy. And, and so, yeah, and because those people, you know, were very friendly and very cool. Do you know what I mean? It was like we'd chat to Loafer, Chef, you know, Pokes, and we became chums, you know. And they, I think they liked the fact that we were, we weren't from round there. We were from a different thing, but we weren't ever trying to be, oh, we're like Londoners and we're this and we're from, you know, it's more like we're just these, we're a random selection of oddballs that are into this music, are into having fun, into raving. And and the Skull Disco parties were just a little mini attempt at us to kind of show our little side of things. It was often in little venues that we we knew the people that ran it and, and they were they were super fun. And I think, you know, it was, um yeah, that was just before, I guess, things really blew up for everyone so then after that yeah it was it was quite mad you wouldn't then see people for quite a long time but then you would see them at a festival booking or at a big club yeah. and it was like it, for me that was overwhelming it was like i wasn't ready for kind of um the sort of attention and and success that we got you know even though when i was we started it was like oh wouldn't it be great if this yeah we could we could sell this music and we could get it to people and we get these gigs, you know, but then when it's happening, it was kind of like, it, it was um, very, I wasn't prepared at all. And so... It was a bit overwhelming. And, and I think there was a definite kind of, um, I don't know, I, th- I think basically everyone who was there at the start, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a definite link, you know, when you, when you, you know, see, even now actually, you know, when I, when I see those guys, yeah, it's, um, it's like, yeah, okay. I, I remember what it was like <laughs> yeah. in those days. It was really mad because especially if we're all, we're all music fans and we've all been going out to things and looked up to scenes and looked up to... Da, 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 and then suddenly it's like you're sort of being looked up to and, and you're being told that you're the cutting edge of this and that you're the blah, 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 blah. And it's like trying to keep your head level at that point and just go like, well, hang on. It's actually just about the music and it's actually about just trying to put on a good show or whatever it is, you know... It was um, very easy to get swept along in in hype and kind of like, yeah, your your fees are going up and it's like people are getting attention, people are getting these deals and I don't know, people are, yeah, people want you to wear their clothes or, or you know, sort of like give you equipment and kind of, it's, you know, it's like, well, hang on, we were the total underdogs not long ago and people actually were kind of quite um, dismissive of oh, yeah, totally. whatever you want to call it, dubstep. Da, da, and then to that flip round and then suddenly literally the same people are going, hey, you're kind of, 
cool now, right? So it, there was there was there was a little. <laughs> it, was, it was literally overnight as well, wasn't it? It was mad how that happens. Yeah, apparently. yeah, and, and and even from the even from the drum and bass scene, and I hold no bones against it, but you'd get them lot coming to you, and and that was that was amazing as well. It would be like we're interested in this sound, and like oh, can we get these tunes? And can we? It's just like wow, this is this is quite bonkers, you know. But but you know, yeah, a lot of them were cool, and I mean that's how we met people like. Um, Marcus Intellects and Martin and and D Bridge and all that and it was like that really felt like a kind of like a very there's something very nice about that because it was like these are all people that are, have been through the drum and basing whether it was as a fan as a label owner as a as a, a trying to make it da, da, da. but here we all are in this new thing and we're doing so, we're trying something a bit different and it was it was very exciting there there was so much music every week getting played that you just were just like what is this what is this what is this and and so yeah i feel really lucky to have been you know able to 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 even get hold of that music you know and then and then present it to other people it was like it's a real honor do you know what i mean and kind of like like yeah it's um it's quite mad watching a scene explode that way when when you've seen it before from the outside you know oh it was it was incredible man like yeah. like it was that that whole very short space of time from the Marianne Hobbs Dubstep Wars show and then the DMZ birthday. Oh, yeah. And that DMZ birthday in particular was the, the most surreal, exp- I think the most ex- surreal experience of my life, to be honest. Yeah. Like, it, the, the expectations were still low. I mean, I kind of had an inkling that, you know, there was more interest in it. Yeah. But that night where, I mean, if, if people aren't aware, well, there's going to be a lot of people aren't aware, yeah. but um, I forget what, what birthday it was. Was it the second birthday or the third? I, 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 think, it, yes. I think it was the third. Yeah. Because um, I think it started in 2005. Actually, no, hang on. No, it must have been the second. Second birthday. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there was, um, like, the venue was booked for Third Base, which was the, like, the third room of the Brixton Mass, which held, what, 400 people or something? Yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So not, not tiny, but definitely not big. Yeah. Um, and on the night, at least 2,000 people turned up. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Maybe more. And they, for by some fluke, um, were able to to get the rest of the venue just on the fly for for, for that just for that thing and like um, yeah they kind of they actually they actually got the people who were upstairs were doing I think a, a trance night and they basically were just like the the people from the venue and and DMs were just like look we kind of need the venue like here's oh, is that what happened yeah here's some right. money like do you mind we'll pay you you know and and we, and they opened up you know this is live happening whilst it's like there's a queue going around the block twice right i, d- I didn't realize someone actually got kicked out yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> was, yeah. and then and i assumed it was just empty wow that's that's incredible yeah and then they filled up and then they filled up the rest of the venue and it was yeah you're right that was that kind of moment where you're like whoa this is this is sort of what I expected was going to happen. Of yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe it. We've been sat, we've been sat in a room on our own for five years, yeah. or six years at that point. Do you know what I mean? And like suddenly, it's this huge. And anyway, um, yeah, it was crazy. Mad. Um, okay, so we we uh, we mentioned earlier the um, the Villa Lobos moment, and obviously that was a big turning point in Skull Disco's history. Yeah. I, I think um, I, I read uh, I was reading another interview with you earlier, and I think you said in that that it saved the label. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, it did. Thing. So tell me, tell me how it came about, and and yeah, what happened? It was a mad one. I was like I said, I was always buying all these magazines and and reading up on. I'm a, you know I'm a nerd like that. Do you know what I mean? So I'm like I want to find out what people are playing and what people are into, and I noticed that some of our stuff was getting chartered by just a few little select kind of um, 
techno DJs and it was it was people generally in Germany and it was people like Villa Lobos I think maybe like DJ Pete like Substance people from the kind of hard wax kind of lot and we, we'd had a bit of a connection to these people anyway because hard wax um, you know for those that don't know it's a really important record shop in Berlin it's been there since even before the wall came down it's like the real hub of dance music and rave music and house music and techno music you know it's been there for a very long time and it's still going it's very well curated but they were selling a lot of our they were the ones that were selling our early records actually and actually pushing them and and there was like a, a little scene of people that were really into it over in berlin where i am now so over here but it's kind of like um we had gone over actually and got booked in berlin I think it might even have been our first overseas show. It was it was just a small thing, but some people came down. And in fact, the hard wax guys were like, oh, come down to the shop and, and say hi. You know, we've been really enjoying your records and we, we've sold quite a lot of them, actually. I mean, we're still talking, you know, like they were selling like hundreds of copies from their shop. But overall, we weren't selling that many in England. So it was kind of like it was just nice to know that this we were big fans of like, um, the Chain Reaction uh, label and Basic Channel and, and Rhythm and Sound, which is all based around that shop and the studios around it. So it's kind of like, it was quite mad for us to kind of go, oh, well, well, this lot that we really love are relating to our music and they're selling it. And they're, and we went down there and said hi. And, you know, they were very just cool and humble and nice and welcoming. And and so there was a little connection there already of of kind of mutual respect and um they i think were enjoying the fact that they were hearing stuff that wasn't just straight up techno because of course they're immersed in the techno world they're in touch with all the techno djs and the clubs in berlin but they were they had wide listening tastes so they were kind of like whoa what's this english sound that's like you know a lot of them had been into drum and bass or jungle a lot of them had been into this and that but like i think they were quite excited by it so long story short I'd seen that Villa Lobos had chartered one of Sam's tracks and I was like, wow, that's that's brilliant. I like the idea of and we'd heard actually that he was he was pitching down Sam's records um to fit into techno sets. So he'd be playing the record, but he'd be playing it on minus eight or whatever and 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 mixing it. Yeah, because at that point techno was was slow. Like yeah. people were playing mid mid twenties really and, and particularly like that kind of minimal sound yeah. uh, was much, much slower. Than, uh, than what we were making at the time. Yeah, and I think I even heard a set, I can't remember whether it was Villalobos, maybe at Fabric or something, and he'd like, you know, he was getting legendary for these really long sets, end of the night, da da da, and he'd go all over the place, and he was he was mixing, I think it was a track called Tinfoil Sky, which is like one of my favourite sort of early Shack records, but it, yeah, was, it, awesome was, it was slow, and he was mixing it with four to the floor stuff, and it was like, this is wicked. So, randomly, again, this is all when we were first getting our first booking, so we, I think we got our first festival booking and it was at Bestival on the Isle of Wight um, Rob DeBanks Festival and so we went along we played a few records on it, on our little thing not many people turned up but it was really fun it was just like oh wow you know we're getting the opportunity to travel and play our music isn't this mad but we also saw that Villa Lobos was playing on another stage and it was like I was like well you know what I'd, I'd, I'd brought um, I'd got I'd said to Sam bounce out the stems of, of Blood on My Hands because that was the track that he'd charted and I was like just bounce the stems out and um, let's just bring them along. And I'm just going to, I'm literally just going to give the CD to, to him because I don't think he was quite hard to get hold of via any other means. He was quite sort of, um, he didn't really want attention like that. He was very much just a music head. 
So, but I knew that he was a massive Shackleton fan. So we went, we went down and it was just quite funny. We like, we were down the front in our Skull Disco hoodies, you know, with the kind of like the little bongo playing skeleton and Villalobos was late and then he turned up and he was looked a bit stressed out. But I was just like, I just was just waving, just going like, yo, yo, Ricardo. And he was like, look down and he ran over to me and he was like, Shackleton, you know, and I was like, no, that's, that's, that's Shackleton. And he's like, oh, you know, gave him a big hug and he was just like, you know, love your music da, da, da. and I was just like well look here's a CD and I just kind of shoved it in his hand and he just went back on stage and got ready for a set and I saw him sort of put this CDR in the front pocket of his record bag and I thought oh that's the last we'll ever see or hear of that you know and I'd, I'd actually just put like you know remix question mark and then like you know uh, our email or whatever Oh, you wrote that on the CD? Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, <laughs> I just, I just thought, like you know, it's just a long shot, but like you never know, you know. Yeah, absolutely, man. You can only try. Yeah, and 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 it was funny because we didn't hear anything for quite a while, and I'd I'd sort of forgotten about it really. It was kind of like one of those silly sort of like, oh well, yeah, we had we had a pop, and then I, I ended up getting an email back off him, and it was just it was always very very short emails, but he was just kind of like he was like, um, I've done the remix, um, it but it's very long. Um, you know, can you make it shorter? Question mark. And he kind of like he'd sent it over, and it was it was twenty minutes long, and it was kind of like, and he was, and he actually said to me like, oh, could you, you, you can you try and edit it, or can you try and do something? Because I, I I can't go back in on it for some reason. I don't know. It, it is what it is. And I actually tried, but as I listened to it, it was like, no, this record is like, um, it needs to be this long. You know, it's like that's that's how he made it. It's a trip. It's a bonkers record and and um it was just like wow okay what are we going to do with this um and so we just like look just chop it in half two sides of a record and let's just see what happens and i think because it's such i mean the original track is 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 really out on its own as well and then this remix is really it doesn't sound like other remixes that villalobos did it doesn't sound it sounds very um it's just a really original track i think do you know what i mean and it really Mm. It really tickled people's ears, and it's one of those. It's one of those moments if you've ever heard it out, where you sort of don't forget it. You know, it's one of those tracks where you're like, "Wow, like what? What is this?" You know, and so I think it really it resonated with people. And you know, Ricardo gave it to us for nothing. You know, he didn't ask for a fee. It was just like, "Here it is. It's a gift to you. Boom, off you go." When he could have been charging thousands for for remixes at that point, so it was just a really nice little touch. In the end, we were like, "Well, let." Shaq can do a remix back for you and it was like oh yeah cool whatever you know it was, but it was never about status or getting the right person to remix it or did it? it was just a little musical connection between two people that that, that you know that Ricardo loved Sam's music and I think it, yeah that record sold loads you know and at a time when we'd been selling not that many you know like we'd be lucky to sell a thousand records probably at that point you know and then i think that one ended up selling like i don't know like yeah eight or nine thousand i mean the, the, the landscape was very very different in yeah. in those days for selling because i mean obviously if someone said if you're going to sell a thousand records now you'd probably be pretty happy <laughs> yeah that, yeah yeah frankly. yeah but no so it's eight eight nine thousand is that what you just said to the, the yeah uh, something the like that you know and and, and 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 you know it continues people still really love love the track and i think it's like um yeah that that also because Bill Lobos was was rising at that point and you know about to become I guess one of the bigger biggest techno DJs and the in the world you know? well I mean to be honest that that track that track was a key track for him as well yeah. you know actually in his career so it wasn't just a case of like you know um it being good for you it was definitely good for him yeah it was a two-way thing yeah 
yeah, it was, um, and, and I think that kind of led into an interesting time. Of course, when you guys started doing substance, I mean, that's, that's another part of the, um, the journey and the kind of like a super, uh, fertile time for just sort of like inspiring music and I guess musicians linking together and being inspired by each other and forging these little connections across different countries and, and different areas that were kind of unified by something even though it wasn't even like everybody's making dubstep or everybody's did it was it was some I don't know what it was it was an attitude and a kind of obviously we were inspired by Berlin as a as a clubbing place because it was so different to England so we were kind of like wow this is like a kind of a wonderland of of great sound great people no fights no weirdness you know and yeah, and, and kind of I mean yeah. I, I I remember the like the very first substance party which you played at. Yeah. Um I remember when like we did substance in the Burkine, but the Panorama Bar was open as well. And I forget yes. who was doing it. I think it might have been Pearl on actually no, I don't think it was. We did some nights with yeah. Pearl on upstairs, but I don't think that first night was. Yeah. But I just remember us finishing downstairs and we all went upstairs yeah. for a for a drink, basically, yeah. and a dance. And I just remember having that kind of like feeling of yeah. like you know, we'd, we've just been doing our very UK thing yeah. down there. But actually, when we're in this kind of very distinctive kind of like Berlin clubbing yeah. sort of like wonderland. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it just felt so different. And it was so refreshing to me. Yeah. Like, and, and really that whole, that sort of four years or so, like 2008 to 2012. Yeah. Were just really, really exciting yeah. musically for me. And I, yeah. I Absolutely. Was it was inspiring. And, and I think the people who went to the nights as well, it's like, you know, they, they really got something from it. And I think, I think like, um, again, being validated by this club that was, you know, it was the real mecca for, for clubbing at that point in terms of like, you know, if you, if you were into interesting dance music and, and you had the opportunity, you would go there and, and, you know, it was very, it was a very open-minded thing, wasn't it? And obviously it's got the, the gay thing and it's got the kind of like the Berlin, even just the history of Berlin and the kind of like, um, you know, I suppose we were used to playing in a very different type of club. Um, you could compare perhaps the sound and the setup to somewhere like Fabric, but I always felt that Fabric had the perfect setup of of sound and technical stuff. But but sometimes the the crowd could be a bit strange, and and in fact, oh, yeah, sure. the door policy, which got slated a lot at Berghain actually in the early days, I think did work because it did actually keep out sleazy male wanker um people oh i think it's still it's still absolutely like key now i mean i think with the with the kind of global like um the global hype that surrounds that venue now if they didn't have a serious door policy it would be awful yeah it? It really yeah would. you would kill that vibe and it's like and it's like and and yeah it comes from that kind of protection of look you are entering a a a gay run and gay friendly and gay orientated, even if not everybody that goes there is this, that or the other, but it's like everybody has to be open-minded to, um, yeah, like a kind of a, a, a live and let live attitude, which as we know, sadly in, in England, you know, like obviously there are spots that are, are very open and friendly, but there's also still a lot of, of closed-minded people there. And so to come somewhere where it's just like really literally everybody's just like, on the same tip everyone feels safe 
Like, you know, my female friends felt safe to rave there on their own. You know, if a female um, went raving at Fabric on their own, they would get hassled, they would get um, uh, bothered and, and so on. And that would that would very rarely happen in, in my experience at, at Berghain. And, and so it was, yeah, it was a joy to sort of see that uh, you can run a club that uh, adheres to the, the right ethics and the kind of like, um, and also just put on a brilliant, set up you know it's like the sound the staff the vibe was all just like on point wasn't it and i think it it blew us away and and it was nice to contribute something back to them and have them say oh you know well done you, you know you've done something really really good here you know oh yeah totally it was a, it was a pleasure to be a part of the whole thing and it's like you know it's funny that you you know just comparing it to how things are in the uk because it only it, i mean that that kind of environment only exists when you have a degree of policing on the door and like there, but there is there is that culture of having that in in the city generally in berlin yeah and like all all clubs have a door policy like a pretty strict door policy there and we just don't really have that culture it's funny in, isn't in the it uk i mean there, there yeah. was i think there was a bit of it in the 90s there were certain clubs um and then you have stuff like dress codes and that kind of stuff but it's a little bit different Definitely. having a dress code to um actually having someone on the door saying no you're not the right kind of person because it's like it's pretty it's it's a little bit problematic yeah you know like it's not it's not straightforward um yeah in, in the way um in the way it comes across and and i guess because and, and we, they've been yeah. they've been they've been sorry they they've been really like criticized um over the years for but for lots of different reasons like there's all kinds of angles you can criticize yeah. a door policy like that from um but it's but it's completely essential i think to be honest to keeping how, how it is i think sometimes because we we felt some people at least were kind of like well the spirit of rave is everybody's welcome so it's like you know how could we turn people away and how could we you know the whole point is everybody everybody is on a level but it's like we know that that isn't the case we know that some people actually don't get a vibe sometimes and are going to be either aggressive moody or this that, and the other so it's like there's a bit of a tension between yeah of course we want we want everybody to rave together but 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 um you know, we've seen it. You know, I remember, where was it? Oh, my God. I played in a club, oh, The Egg in King's Cross. And it was like, it was brutal. Do you know what I mean? And it was just it was just kind of like, wow. It's like, I'm never coming here again. I'm never playing here again. I saw someone get, like, literally just glassed on the dance floor. And it was just oh, like, I've never Jesus. seen anything like that before. And it was just like, but it was, like, it, was that, it was that energy of just, like, loads of men, loads of um, drunken idiots and it's like that's that's not the people that you want in a in a in a, a proper safe rave, is it? It's just not. No. Sorry, you actually do have to discriminate against some idiots. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, funny. Yeah, absolutely, man. So what? Um, I was talking. Well, I had had Deadbeat on the show last week, and we were talking about the Berlin club scene, generally speaking, um, and his kind of like his. I mean, his involvement in it as as a DJ, but but also actually as a kind of you know, just as a kind of inhabitant of the city and, yeah. and how kind of important it is to him and his sort of favourite venues. And he, he name-checked um, Club Division Era. So I was wondering what your other, other part from the Burkine, your other kind of like Ber Berlin places might be. Yeah. So, I mean, like, um, pre-lockdown, pre it was kind of like um, places that I used to play, but just little small you know, I'd never played like big shows anymore, but I played like the little rooms at places like About Blank 
um, and Griesmuller. Actually, Griesmuller was was pretty much my favourite um, spot, which was really. Um, I mean, they've changed location now, and I haven't checked the new one. It just started to open up again before lockdown or in the easing of the lockdown. But um, the original spot, um, which was just at the edge of um, Neukölln, was it was just amazing, and and that had that kind of like feeling of it's 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 a rave it's open it's got these crazy outdoor kind of like we used to joke and say like man if you open this kind of place in england it'd be shut within the first weekend because someone would either have (laughs) fallen out of a tree you know climbed down these narrow metal stairs that inside this sort of grain silo it's an old um like grain processing plant. So it's almost like semi-industrial, but semi, it's like an adult playground is how I describe it. It's all these little nooks and crannies and built structures. and But then in the actual rooms themselves, the main room sounds brilliant. And um, yeah, you could rave there sort of all weekend and kind of feel just very safe. And yeah, you're amongst sort of like-minded people. Um where else was there before? Oh, we really love, and we actually did a night at um, a place called Ohm, which is part of the Trezor kind of complex, um, but it's like a little mini club within the club. So it has a separate entrance. So it's not actually directly, you wouldn't go between the two clubs. You'd have Trezor, da da da. It's, and it's a very headsy, it, it, it was getting very close to plastic people um, vibes, actually. Um, especially like the sound was always pretty good. But it's kept getting tweaked and tweaked and they they um, sound treated the place. And we knew the sound guy there, Barry, and we did a night there. Me and my mate um, who runs like um, Sneaker Social Club and like, um, you know, it's like that was really my first experience again of some kind of semi-residency. It's like, OK, I had kind of forward back in the day, semi-residency, you know, substance. I really felt like I was part of that and, and to play in one place again and again and, and know the crowd. I hadn't really had that since. And then at home, we do it maybe every other month. And um, it's super, super fun. You know, we get kind of all kinds of people down there um, from old drum and bass people like Paradox. And we even got like Fabio and Groove Rider doing like a kind of 91 oh, really? set, you know, but then we'd get like um, Christoph de Babylon. We've got um, Shackleton. We've got um, Lojack, like a real mixture of stuff. Um, and, but with a, with a, with an angle on this UK rave influenced kind of stuff. So anything from breakbeats, old rave music, bleep, bassy, and then modern 140 stuff, grime, like just anything like that. And we actually started building up a really nice little crowd of people again. So like, it's not a massive club. You might only get 400, I think you might get 600, like over a night or something, but real people that are just um really friendly really into the sound and yeah i'm just basically waiting for that place to open again we're in this stage where things are going to get relaxed at the end of march i believe it is but nobody quite knows who's taking the plunge first in terms of opening their club and people are playing it safe so i think maybe trezor and that might wait a bit longer but i'm i'm kind of desperate for that because obviously for all of us, we haven't had an outlet for the music that we're making. You know, we've still been making music, but it's just like there's been nowhere to play it. So it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're you know, I'd, I'd finish tunes to test them out down there, you know, and, and, and so on. Having that little kind of continuation 
Um, so I'm sort of, yeah, I'm just really, yeah, as we all are, just uh, very excited about hopefully that that coming back and and feeling like you've got a reason for uh, making tracks again. Do you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Um, okay, so yeah, I mean, Berlin's such a such a cool place. I haven't been there for for ages. I haven't. Well, I was in Pound really briefly the other week just to do her, but ah, um, okay. Uh, I was only there for the night. I'm really looking forward to coming back and spending, spending a bit of time. Um, there's another city that I I associate you with in my head. I'm not sure how accurate it is, and that's Bristol. Yeah. Tell me a bit about if that if that's a fair thing yeah, to say. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know so, why. yeah. Okay, all right. So I I I am right about that. So tell me a bit about Bristol in in terms of like your. Um, involvement in it and and the scenes maybe is it as contrasting to berlin a little bit because bristol's very different to london so yeah tell me yeah about it. i mean but there was yeah there was there was a nice connection again between um certain people in bristol and then the berlin thing i mean we studied um me and my mates doing sound and music at a place near bristol and so therefore we would go over there a lot and this was just at the start of the um the dubstep kind of thing and the grime thing and there was a shop called Rooted Records which was run by Peverlist and a couple of other people and so in those days not many people were into that sound at all and so if you went into a shop and you bought these things they'd be like oh wow you're checking that stuff out what you know you just get chatting and so we were very quickly just kind of linked up with people that were trying this stuff out they were all again either you know not failed junglists but people that kind of like were really into um jungle and drum and bass but again hadn't found their way into it so people like pinch and pev you know big drum and bass and jungle fans but and i think they tried making it but it was like when they first then went to forward and heard this thing they were blown away as well so we were very lucky actually that we moved to bristol and the the, the little music scene that we had there very quickly we're like, yeah, come come and play at our nights. And this was, again, when people, you know, 20 people were turning up, 30 people, you know. So it was like it was a very much a little passion, work of passion and kind of love, labour of love. And then it grew. So Pinch put things on there, which were his versions of the of the London raves, which were different. So Bristol, again, it's got, um, like you said, it's different to London. It's got a very much more laid back vibe. Um, it's very strongly sort of... Um, you know multicultural in terms of like the kind of the west indian influence and the caribbean influence and the drum and bass thing you know and even just like tricky portis head massive attack that kind of like hip-hop soul reggae rare groove rave da, 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 you know dj die dj crusher all these heroes um pinch started doing his own thing and and then people pricked up their ears to that so you'd get yeah, this very interesting and fun combination of people. And he'd get the London people down to play. And we all just became really great friends. So there was like a kind of little triangle of like Bristol, London and Leeds as well. And um, with Subdub in Leeds. And so... Yeah, Leeds was a really key city, wasn't it? For, for Dubstep in that point, yeah. Same kind of thing. Like, yeah, like headsy, really good sound, um, understood bass, understood, you know, Subdub, you know... For, people who don't know that was like a mad night because it's like it's a jamaican style thing with us with often with jamaican sound systems but playing either techno jungle rave and then the the, the reggae dub stuff as well and you'd get a real mixture of people so you'd get the students you'd get the rasters you'd get the kind of everybody you know 
proper raving. Yeah, it was at the West Indian Centre in Leeds, wasn't it? And those Eurasian steppers guys were a big part of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, and, and it was the same kind of thing in Bristol. It was like you had a really fun combination of like, you know, student people and middle class people and then locals from the area and some people from, you know, um, the sound system culture kind of coming together. And you'd have like nights where it would be dubstep upstairs and then it would be proper roots and dub downstairs on on something like iration steppers or um you know manese or or you know like all these big uk systems because there was a guy called strider who who linked up with pinch and so it was like it was like this really nice melting pot of influences and we were very welcomed into the scene you know uh, you know we'd only been living there a week or two and we're getting invited to play on little pirate radio stations and it was people like headhunter addison groove and um mc jakes from from the drum and bass days and you know and then even yeah people like die and cross would pop up and, it, and it's kind of like um it was a real fun journey because i loved that bristol music and we just found that Bristol was a very friendly place and, and it wasn't like London in that, in, 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 in a cliquey way, not dubstep thing wasn't cliquey at all. I felt, but other scenes in London could often be quite, um, it could be a bit off-putting even like the punk scene in London, you'd get looked down on by punks, you know, and it's kind of like, hang on a minute. Punk's meant to be about everybody's welcome. Do you know what I mean? And all this, you know, so it's kind of like in Bristol, it was different. It was kind of like, it really, it sounds a bit cheesy, but there is this kind of like, um, like a unity of just kind of like we're into music and yeah it was very cool you had people like joker and jemmy and guido and, and all these musicians that were like they were the younger generation that were into like grime and garage but then they were making this weird dubstep stuff and it was just it was again it was a very exciting and fertile time pev was putting out really interesting records by people that you know, he gave a lot of people their first chances. I mean, Pinch gave Joker his first things. Pev, we're talking about Khan and like the Young Echo thing. You're talking about um, Tesla and, you know, everything that he went on to do. do you know what I mean, so it's like a little, a little like cottage industry of a very interesting and, and uh, experimental, but um, danceable music that, that um, yeah, we were sort of, very lucky to be a part of so bristol's yeah still very close to my heart i haven't been back there in, in quite a long time but it's like there's something about it down there which definitely has a a different flavor and a kind of and it's a it's a music city do you know what I mean yeah it totally is um it's a great place uh for lots of lots of reasons yeah um okay so one last thing i want to get into yeah um because we've been going a while yeah uh, although it's been really it's been super interesting <laughs> so far um is uh, okay. So basically, I've asked everyone who's been on so far on the pod on the podcast so far about their view on the album format. Mm. And um, you have released two albums in the last uh, four years, I believe. I think the first one was in two thousand eighteen. Correct if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the Sneaker Social Club uh, label, which you referred to earlier, is it? It's Jamie from from Hypercolor who runs that label. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So. So basically, my question is what well, I mean. I'm asking the same question on on every pod, so I'm just going to say what I always say. But there's basically two. So there's two halves to the question. First, first of all, what do you think about albums generally now in 2022? Because obviously, you know, there's there's been a, a bit of a shift in the way think people think about them, and then then your own approach 
and experience in, in in making albums so let's go for the first half first so what do you think about albums now so i mean i think like everyone else perhaps or like a lot of people you know things like attention spans and the internet and streaming and all these different things have have taken away from like it's it's not often that i'll sit down and really like turn off everything else and just listen to an album like start to finish anymore and that's to to my own sort of detriment do you know what i mean and when i do do it i'm always very very enriched by it but it's something that for some reason because of the distractions that we have these days and that's obviously about your own management of them because it's it's actually not that hard to just turn your phone off and da 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 and pick up a book and put on an album. But for some reason, because we're getting nudged, <laughs> I mean, it actually is it actually is quite hard apparently. <laughs> it is hard. It is hard, and yeah, and and we and we're getting nudged all the time, and 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 it, and there is a neurological change that actually has taken place in the brain. Like it's been proved, like attention span is down. Do you know what I mean? Like and this idea of having thirty tabs open on your on your internet where you're doing. 20 things at once, not that well, when actually you could be doing one thing at a time and, and that's when you actually zone in. Multitasking is actually extremely hard. And I think um, I tend to listen more now to things, I guess, um, might not be really... I wouldn't sit down and listen to a whole dance music album, perhaps, all in one. I'll listen to like ambient things or drone things or experimental things or folk things or things from outside... Um, perhaps like say rhythmic dance music but for me it took me a long time to have the confidence to do an album we were always people who put out 12 inches do you know what I mean and that was the kind of that was our currency wasn't it you know it was kind of like um something about it um you can make the track and then get it out it's not it's 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 a the, the, the album has a daunting uh you're making a statement, a larger statement. It's got a sort of myth- mythical quality, doesn't, doesn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. I think I think people, I think producers see it in that kind of romanticised kind of a way. Yeah, a big artistic statement, and 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 I think that's like even sort of like yeah, the kind of the choices that you make of the tracks that go on it, or the, the sequencing of the tracks. I mean, like you know, I I made albums back in the day with my with my band, and 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 it was. Yeah, it is. It's a, you put a lot into it. It's a lot of emotions and a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of it's a lot of stress and a lot of uh, thinking and second guessing and finalizing and trying to walk away from it. And da, da, da. so it's like, I, as with everything, I always have have to have a break from it for quite some time afterwards. So it's like I I, I finally released my first album as Appleblim after many many years of, of releasing music. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like I can't remember how many years in, like twelve or thirteen. I don't know. So it's kind of like. But maybe now, you know, a few years after it, I can actually sit down and listen to it and go like, okay, that's that's worth sitting down and listening to. But but um, yeah, I, I guess the stuff that I've been doing, I mean, I've been working a lot on collaborations, and those kind of albums have come together actually very quickly, and we've got we've got a real variety of stuff that kind of like I think really does justify sitting down and listening to the whole thing i think perhaps with my own stuff i'm i'm harder on it and i'm also second guessing it a lot like oh would would someone sit down and listen to this hour of music from start to finish i don't know but with this um this i've got this other project um coming up with a friend we've got we've got like three albums kind of ready and coming out over the next sort of year or so and i think those ones i am sitting down and, and i'm putting them on and i'm 
putting my headphones on and just listening to it as a body of work. And I think it does hang well together. So it's kind of, it's a funny one. It's a funny one because it's, um, yeah, it, suddenly it becomes, well, look, I'm, 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 well, with all this, uh, pressing plant holdups and with the, with the lockdown and the, and the kind of lack of gigs and da, 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 it all felt quite really, I just ended up making music to keep myself sane. Actually, it was, it was actually much more like therapy. It was like, if I could go to the studio with my, with my mate a few times a week and do these different things that would keep me feeling positive. And we didn't really think at all about these things in terms of an album cycle or a promotional thing or this or that. And now suddenly it's like, oh, things are starting to open up a bit. We'd better start thinking about this. Let's start trying to get these things at home. Let's start trying to make a live set. Let's start thinking that we might actually get some some gigs and some life back into this. And that's quite interesting because they weren't made with that in mind at all. And I think actually they're better for it because we just made them because we just, we had to make them and we had to enjoy the process of making them. So it's like, I, I, I really feel like the music that I'm making now is so much more honest and so much more um, separated from things that it's just like, it is simply, I, I just do it because I enjoy it. And it's no longer tied to like, it has to earn me this much money or I have to get this many shows or I have to get this much validation from a resident advisor review or da, da, da. you know, all that thankfully has kind of been put aside because that, that disturbed me for a few years, you know, and it stopped me making music. So it's kind of like, I feel like I'm free of that now. And so they just exist as they are. And then, yeah, we'll just see how people react to them as, as, as long players, as, as whole albums. I don't know. Let the, let the audience decide. That's interesting that you say you found that sort of demotivating because, um, cause yeah, you had, had a quite a lot of success actually. Um, so at what point did that kind of demotivation kind of kick in? I'll tell you, it was when the gigs came too much. So it was like saying yes to every single gig. Um, you know, I'd never had access to that much money before. I'd never been that busy before. And equally, it then took me away from the studio because it was like I was so tired after playing two or three gigs in a weekend. I'd get back and I might need two or three days to actually just do nothing. And then it's like, OK, maybe I'll try and make some music on a Thursday. And then it's like there's a gig again on a Friday and that might be halfway around the world. So it's like that became overwhelming after a certain amount of time. And it also made me it made diff making music difficult and and I think then also some of my confidence went. So it was kind of like, in actual fact, um, that that sort of weirdly fed into probably getting less gigs eventually because it's like, well, I'm not putting things out. I'm not in the promotional cycle. So it had this weird boom and then this kind of bust. And then it's like, it took me a while to get my head around. Okay, well, I don't want to be that busy anymore because it's actually making me unhappy and it's making me unhealthy. So what is, what's the golden, uh, rate ratio? Where's the, where's the sweet spot? Like, like you want people to hear your music. You want it to be popular in some sense, but even if that's now I, I get as much enjoyment from 10 people dancing at a gig, I probably more enjoyment than when I played to like, I don't know, 10,000 or something and was actually not in the moment. I was tired. I felt stressed. It was a job. All the things that I just never thought would happen with music. It's like, you know about I mean? that, right? yeah, <laughs> really it's crazy, isn't it? So, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky that we've, we've been through that, 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 that thing, but also there's so many pitfalls and so many 
things that go with it. It was really interesting to hear Darren Debridge talking about all that stuff where it's cycles of popularity and then this and that and boom and bust and changes. I feel very lucky and, and blessed to have gone through those things now. But actually, at the time, they're it's mega stressful at points, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? And you have to get a healthy work-life balance and, and, and like, where is that, you know? So, yeah, like, yeah, music is, is uh, yeah, it's such a powerful force. But as soon as you start um, incorporating anything into like a, a like a work schedule, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's strange, it's strange. So now I just, I just like making music for music's sake, really. Do you know what I mean? And I feel much healthier in that way. Yeah, totally. It's very difficult to get that whole thing right. I mean, it's. I mean, I found it extremely difficult as well. And I think like there's very few. There's very few people who are able to um, combine like a real, like a proper touring schedule and actually making like good music. I mean, I can't think of many people who could do that at all. Really. Yeah, it is. You you need you need real discipline and you need real kind of like um, yeah, kind of like. Uh, it's all kind of like compartmentalization or something like. yeah like motivation for the right reasons and i think there's there's a lot of uh things when either money or popularity comes into it that that, that sort of lead you astray and kind of aren't particularly positive so it's kind of like well, i mean <laughs> those two things are yeah highly problematic <laughs> yeah. For, for, for many different yeah, for reasons most but like for making music yeah it's a it's a disaster completely <laughs> All right, so just before we just before we close, um, give me some albums that were like important to you in the, your kind of like musical development, and just you know, albums that you love. And you know, give me give me give me a few, no pressure, but like yeah, just 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 a few that come to mind immediately. Yeah, immediately. Well, definitely like um, Orbital, like the Green Album, the Brown Album, um, and all their early singles. Um, Future Sound of London, Accelerator, um, and then. Things like My Bloody Valentine, like Loveless, um, Talk Talk, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock, um, Bert Yanch, uh, It Don't Bother Me, oh, Fairport Convention, Legion Leaf. I mean, like the list goes on and on, man. <laughs> John, John Coltrane, Live at the Village Vanguard, um, oh, Global Communication, 7614. Um, wow. Uh, Dr. Alamantado, Best Dressed Chicken in Town. Uh, Augustus Pablo, original rockers. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, there's so many sort of different genres that have had an effect. Um, cardiacs, like the whole everything Cardiacs ever put out. Um, Gong, XTC, Henry Cow, uh, Dental <laughs> Giant. I mean, the list goes on, mate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a good that's a good lot for people to dig through. It's got to understand where you're coming yeah, from. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, cool man well listen thanks so much for doing this it's been great brilliant super fun to catch up and, and chat man and let's uh, not leave it so long next time I'll, I'll see you next time you're over here right yeah absolutely man hit me up that was Apple Blim and a really fun conversation it was great to get into that early forward stuff early dubstep stuff um, a real trip down memory lane for me I have to say um those really were my kind of formative years uh, in music. I mean, obviously I'd been involved in, you know, going out and all that stuff, but in terms of actually getting properly involved with the scene, that was my way in. And um, yeah, got a bit misty-eyed in places there. But um, yeah, Laurie was um, very much part of that whole thing from very early on. So it was great to, um, to get to go over it 
again in detail. Um, okay, so just before we go, we have the full EP on Who Whom from BM6 out this Friday. This uh, single been out in the last couple of weeks, but the full EP Liminal Trek is out on Friday the 18th. Been playing those tracks in my sets uh, for a good while, so it's great to get them out into the world finally. Um, Who Whom is an uh, offshoot of Hot Flush, of course. So um, get it via Hot Flush channels, hotflush.bandcamp.com or Hot Flush socials for information on that stuff. And um, yeah, we've got lots of m- lots more good stuff coming out on Who Whom and also the affiliated labels as well, of course. So um, yeah, just before I go, a reminder to leave us a review or a rating. Wherever you're listening to this, join us in the discords, link in the show notes, and follow that Spotify playlist to put the music into context, or rather listen to the music that you've just had put into context on a podcast. (laughs) Um, All the episodes are in that playlist as well, though, just for reference. Anyway, um, I'll be back, same time, same place, right here next week on the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.